All right. So when we were laying out our preaching schedule, um, I looked and I had the church of Thyatira and I was going, oh, oh, oh. I mean, it just kind of hurt me for a little bit. I was whining to Ken and Jordan. I was like, why, why did I get the church of Thyatira? I mean, it's never been uh, one of my favorites until now. Um, and after I really got a chance to study it and, and skip over, not skip over, but actually see what God's saying um, in the whole letter, then I understood how good it was. Um, how many of you have ever purchased anything online? Okay, pretty much everybody. Some of us, I mean, some of you are addicted to that. Um, where it's just so easy. It's just so easy to say, proceed to check out. And you don't see the money leave or anything. You just know that something shows up at your door a couple days later. But before you do that, most of the time you read a review. Now, reviews are very important. They help us when we go to purchase something. But you always want to read the one stars. You know, I mean, it can have 5,000 good reviews and there's a one star there and you're going to read that. And a lot of times when I read the, the bad reviews, I can kind of get a sense that, um, well, that person's just a, that person's not very smart. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you know, they wanted to complain because it, they give them a one star because the, the package got crushed in shipping. I was like, well, that's not the package's fault, you know. And I was a little guilty of that when I first read this letter to uh, the church of Thyatira, it's like for some reason I just focused on the bad part. Um, I focused on the rebuke, and we're going to talk about the rebuke. But once I really uh, read the whole letter, I understood what Jesus was really trying to accomplish when he wrote this letter. Now let's just a little bit about Thyatira. It's the, this was the longest letter to what many believe was the smallest church. Now, just because it's long, I want to I just put some people in that they know who I'm talking about. I want to put them at ease that I'm not going to preach a long time today. Because <laughs> I've already been, uh, I had someone say, I'm going to give you the hand signs, you know, if you go over this amount of time. But it was a long letter. Thyatira is located about 35 miles southeast of Pergamum, which is what the church we talked about last year. So they're pretty close, like from here to Charlotte. Um, it was known for um, its trade guilds, which was kind of like unions. Um, and one thing about these, one thing about these uh, trade guilds, it was known for wool and dyeing, like dyeing of fabrics and things like that. Which, you know, nowadays we don't even think about. We're all wearing different colors in here, and it's not a big deal. But back then, if somebody had a color on, it was a big deal. I mean, they were rich if you were able to actually get your your cotton or whatever you were wearing colored, you were, you were considered wealthy. Um, and one thing that struck me about Thyatira was these trade guilds, um, they were interwoven, entwined with religion. Now just try to picture that where you work today. If what you were doing, your profession, was just interwoven with the overall religion of the area, it would be a little weird. I mean, a lot of us take our, our religious beliefs into our workplace, which is good, because we're supposed to be representatives of Christ. 
But it was kind of pushed on these people. If you work for this union, if you work for this guild, you were kind of expected to follow what that guild worshipped, which was Apollo at the time. So you can see as Christians how it might have been a little difficult to be a Christian when your boss is saying you need to show up at the temple and you need to eat this and you need to do this. I mean, you had to take a stand, right? We're not really challenged. People nowadays, when they say, oh, I've been persecuted, I'm persecuted. Well, the church is persecuted to an extent right now. But somebody calling you out on Facebook or disagreeing with how you think that Bible verse, what it means, that's not persecution. That's not, that's not persecution. That's a disagreement. I'm talking about someone that's willing to lose their job or even sometimes their life because of their belief in Christ. That would be what I consider persecution. Um, so I wanted to know, we're talking, we're, we're talking here amongst staff about the Great Commission, which is planting churches. That's what we're called to do. We're called to not just sit here and do church the way we like to do church and do it well. We're called to plant other churches, to do other things, to see the gospel of Christ spread in a multiplication fashion, right? Not just addition, not just saying, hey, bring your neighbor, which is good. But we're talking about bring your neighbor and then let's see your neighbor plant a church somewhere else and grow. And I was thinking, well, how did the church in Thyatira get started? And so I read several different commentaries, and one that really, I think, is, 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 is very accurate. Um, first of all, let me say this. What's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. And if you dig in enough, you'll see where, especially in the New Testament, they will, use a, they will comment or explain an Old Testament passage. So, um, even though we're studying mainly in the book of Revelation today, the most well-known Thyatiran was actually introduced in Acts. And it's in verse 16. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read it for you real quick. Chapter 16, verse 14. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guest. If you agree that I am truly a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home, and she urged us until we agreed. So she really didn't give them away. She, she wanted them to come stay at her home. But here's Lydia. She was a merchant, and her and her whole household got saved. And what many believe was that she moved back to Thyatira. At some point, she went home and started the Thyatira church, which I think is, is, is a good possibility. Let's just say it like that. Um, why would she start a church? Well, in verse 40 of chapter 16 of Acts, when Paul and Silas got out of prison, they went to meet the brothers and encourage them at Lydia's house where the church of Philippi was meeting. So she was pretty good at starting churches. She, she wanted them to come to her house. They started a church in Philippi. There's no reason why her and her household, her family said it could be her servants, wouldn't eventually find their way back to Thyatira. And I believe, and a lot of scholars believe, that's how the church got started. So my first point is the introduction. 
We're going to be in Revelation 2.18. That's where the letter to Thyatira starts. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about it. Uh, verse 18 says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. Let's stop right there. Nothing is said in Scripture without a point or a purpose. Everything that's said, it's not like, oh, that's just filler. That's just fluff. That's not how Scripture works. Everything has a purpose. And in chapter 8, in verse 18, in my Bible, you know how some of our Bibles have the red letters, like this is Jesus talking? Well, that's how this is in mine. Now, Jesus has long been crucified and resurrected. He's in heaven. But this is John getting a direct word from Christ on what to say. So it's actually in quotes. And when Christ says, um, from the Son of God, that's different. Because in the other letters we've read so far, it was the Son of Man. Now, what's the difference in the Son of Man and the Son of God? They're the same. But they illustrate different facets of Christ's character. So if I say, hey, let me introduce you to the Son of Man. That sounds kind of inviting, you know? And the Son of Man really represented his compassion, his care, his intercession, his understanding of our weaknesses. We did a whole series on the Son of Man, and that's what we talked about. You know, how he was, the Son of Man is how he relates to our humanity. But Christ had a reason for saying, for calling himself the Son of God. And then he gives a description, flame, eyes like flames of fire. Feet like polished bronze. See, the Son of God represents his holiness, his transcendence, his deity, his judgment. He's not, he's not like, um, you know, in Sunday school we would see a picture of Jesus and he was usually very well-groomed and he was sitting underneath a tree and he had a lamb in his arm, you know, and children gathered around now. That was part of Jesus. But eyes like flame of fire, feet of polished bronze. They said uh, the Thyatiran guilds learned how, to, learned how to make zinc and copper and put them together, and it made this material that they used to make weapons of war. And that was the polished bronze. That's what John and Christ were communicating to the Thyatirans. Polished bronze was something hard enough to be a weapon of war, to, be, to trample out the injustice. And so when you think about flames of fire, Revelation 1.16 says um, his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Matthew, which I like this one, in Matthew we talk, it talks about when he was transfigured, when his disciples saw him transfigured. In Matthew it says... As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun. See, nothing can hide from the sun, the son of God. And we think you could get in the shadow from sunlight, but what would happen if that sun was five feet away? Nothing. Nothing could stand. Nothing would be in, nothing could get away, escape its heat, its fire. And one thing Christ is trying to communicate here is, you can't hide from me. Church of Thyatira, you can't hide anything 
This is who I am. I've come in my deity and my judgment to tell you the things of God and nothing you do, I won't see. I know everything. Feet like polished bronze. See, here's another commentary from the book of Daniel where Daniel 10.6 says, His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze. See, these are the imagery. This is the imagery that Christ is using. He's not just saying this in Revelation. He's saying it in Matthew. He's saying it in Daniel. He's giving an illustration of who he is. Verse 19. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. And I can see your constant improvement in these, in these areas. Sounds like the perfect church in that verse, right? If we saw that church, if we saw a church full of love, faith, service, perseverance, that's constantly growing, that's a church that we want to be a part of. I hear these same words talk, talking, spoken about this church. People say, oh, it was, I felt so loved when I was there. Um, you know, I was served. I, I hear these things. And hopefully, we're meeting these expectations of Christ. We're growing. We're doing our best to follow these examples. And I put in my notes, but wait, there's more. <laughs> See, that was the introduction. A lot of times in, in the business world, if someone has to talk to their employee about something, here's the, here's the thought process. I want to say something good. And I want to tell them what they're doing wrong, and then I'm going to say something good again. And I find that in this passage because in the very next verse, Revelation 2, 20 through 23, I say it's the rebuke. The rebuke. See, he's, he, he's acknowledged the good things of this church. Well, first he acknowledged, you can't hide from me, and I'm here to stamp out any kind of injustice. Then he says, this is what you're doing right. And then he says, but I, have, but I have this complaint against you. Now, think about this. This is Christ talking to the church. This is, this is not a preacher standing up. This is, this is a letter from Jesus Christ. He says, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will, throw, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and they turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you what you deserve. Clearly, Christ is sending a message here. He is sending a message to this church. Look, there's so much here. I told, I told, uh, I told Pastor King, I said, when I start, it's like I had a pick in my shirt, and I was going to pull it. And Donna said, don't pull it. It will unravel, and you'll just have a hole. I know how to fix it. And she did. But these scriptures are like a thread 
when you start pulling them, they unravel into so many different areas. I mean, and one of my, one of my problems is, as a pastor is, I want to tell you all the areas. But the truth is, you don't want to hear all the areas because we'd be here till 6 o'clock this evening. So I just have to pare down, really distill it down into what God's trying to say today because just because Jeff wants to tell you everything doesn't mean God just wants to give you enough, enough to understand what he's trying to say here. And so he's sending a message. Now I want to break this passage down a little bit, but the way I want us to start is with this quote, and it says, what one generation tolerates, the next generation accepts. Think about that for a second. The generation before us, and the generation before that, and the generation before that. We always want to look back to the good old days, right? We want to say, well, back then, they didn't let this happen. Back then, there wasn't this. Back then, this wasn't accepted. But it, di it didn't have to be accepted. It just had to be tolerated. And if I ask you this question, will Christ tolerate sin? The answer is 100% no. But when we tolerate sin, when we say, I'm just not going to get involved. That's not my fight. I'm not talking about eradicating sin. I'm not talking about making it your life mission to do away with it. I'm talking about taking a stand. See, I say all the time, when I was little, we went to church on Sunday morning, it was full. Everything around here was closed. I'm talking about the grocery stores closed. Everything was closed. That's crazy, thought, that's crazy thinking to my kids. They can't even understand that. Everything was closed. And guess what? We went home. We ate, usually at my grandma's house. We hung out there for a while. We went home just in time to get redressed into our Sunday evening clothes, which means I didn't have to wear the clip-on tie. I'm being honest. And we showed back up at church, and guess what? It was full. And we had this thing called training union. You know what training union was? It was Sunday school at night. And you went to training union, and everybody went to their classes, and then you got out of that, and you went back to preaching, and then you went home. And I say sometimes, you know, when we do things, when churches try to do things on Sunday nights now, it's, it's just a, it's just a, a small amount of people that show back up. And that's not really an indictment. That's just a fact. That when somebody somewhere started tolerating, and I'm not saying not going to church is a sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but tolerating anything, the next generation just accepts it. And it continues. What we tolerate as a generation, the next generation will accept. And we see that in society. I'm not going to try to go down that road on what I think a lot of those things are, but I'm sure it's going through your mind right now. In all areas of your life, things that are being tolerated. And it's like we complain about it, but we tolerate it, and then we fuss because somebody else is accepting it. Okay. The main sin of the church of Thyatira was tolerance. They tolerated sin. That was the rebuke. Now, here's the crazy thing. Tolerance versus intolerance. How similar is our church today to Thyatira? Do you know what the universal 
what pretty much is a universal, considered a universal sin in this society? Intolerance. Pretty much all over the world, intolerance is considered a sin to people or something bad. If you don't tolerate that person, if you don't tolerate what they're doing, then you're a bad person. You know? I mean, oh boy. Oh boy. Um, let, me, let me illustrate it from Scripture. Uh, that's, that's, that's a safety net for me. <laughs> um, did y'all catch that? I was getting ready to say something that Jeff was wanting to say. Anyway, there's a story in Luke 4, 31 through 35. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. But there was a demon that was comfortable in the synagogue. He was comfortable until Jesus wrecked him. And here's the scripture, 31. Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. There, too, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. Once when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit cried out, shouting, Go away. Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the demon threw the man to the floor, and the crowd watched when he came out without hurting him further. You know what that story tells me? There was a guy possessed by a demon who was just one of the congregation. He was a part of the synagogue. And Jesus was teaching there, and then he got so uncomfortable at the teaching of Jesus that he actually says, he actually says, go away. Why are you interfering with us? See, this, people want to think that uh, the demonic forces, they walk up to a church and they go, oh, oh, can't go in there. That's the house of God. That's not true. The cross doesn't repel them like, a, like you think of a vampire or something. Look, they infiltrate their own committees. They're in meetings. They're making decisions. I mean, that's just, that's what Scripture says. This guy was there. And the only thing that caused him to be uncomfortable was the presence of Jesus Christ. So when we're in the house of God, when we're, when, we're, when we're calling ourselves a church, if we don't have the presence of Christ in everything we do, in our meetings, in our decision-making, in our youth groups, in our men's and our deacons, we could allow this presence. We have to be on guard. In this scripture, it says that Jezebel. Nobody believes that woman's name was Jezebel, but that was a good way for, for Christ to communicate to the Thyatirans because everybody knew that story. Everybody knew the story of Jezebel, and if you don't know it, 
read First and Second Kings. It's fascinating. And just to make my wife more comfortable, I'm not going to tell you how Jezebel died because when I told her yesterday, she's like, eh, I don't know, that might not fit because it is gruesome. It is gruesome. So there you go. Go to First and Second Kings and read the story of Jezebel. But when he said that woman, that Jezebel, those people knew exactly what he was talking about. Because, look, I did a name search. You know how you can search your name and see how many people are named Jeff or Chris or David? You know, you, look, there's nobody named Lucifer and there's nobody named Jezebel. <laughs> people just don't do it. That's not like, oh, I'm going to name my little daughter Jezebel. Never. There was one Jezebel that we know of. But nobody named Jezebel. Jezebel was a greedy, murderous, evil woman who worshipped idols. And that's what this prophetess in this story was getting the church in Thyatira to do. She was leading them. She said she was a prophetess. Why? Because she could use this false authority of God to make people do stuff. You see this correlation? People say, I'm a prophet or I'm a preacher, so do this. The church today and the church of Thyatira had a lot of similarities. Had a lot of similarities. But here's, a good, here's, here's one of the good things. Now, I read those three scriptures. See, it's like ten scriptures here. But when I read about the church in Thyatira, I really focused on that rebuke. That was the one-star review. And it got me hung up on how bad they were. But he started out with telling them how good they were. That's why the, the title of my sermon today, which I didn't say, and I'm sorry, guys, I, I got out of order, but it's the tale of two churches because there was two churches here. There's no doubt there was two churches in Thyatira that was the Thyatiran church. And in some churches today, there's two churches. There's actually two churches. There's the church that are following Christ and there's the church that say, I really enjoy being around those people. Two churches. In verse 21 and 22, though, even in that rebuke, Christ says, um, he wanted them to repent. He wanted to give, even Jezebel, even this woman, he said he wanted her to repent. He, he give her a chance. And I thought about 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 9, where he says, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but everyone to repent. Everyone. Even this prophetess that was leading this church astray. Okay, enough with the rebuke. My next point is the godly remnant. So many places in Scripture, um, God talks about a remnant. You know what a remnant is? It's a, it's a portion of something. It's a small portion of, of something. Revelation 24, uh, 2, 24 and 25. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed the false teachings, deep, deeper truths, as they call them, the depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have to what you have until I come. I will ask nothing more of you. See, here's what, they, here's what he had said in verse 19. He had said, I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, 
and your perseverance. What Christ is saying here is, do that until I come. Do that until I come. Do that and continue to improve until I come. I'm not asking you to do anything else. Just stay there. Do those things. Be the godly remnant of this church, and I can work with that. See, there's another side that's following Jezebel, and then there's, these, there's this group. I want to read that again, verse 24. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed the false teachings. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. He's not saying, he's not saying you got your fire insurance. You know, you're not going to hell. Just hang on till I get there. He's saying continue in these things. Continue in these things. What are some other godly remnants in Scripture? Noah and his family? I mean, there was eight of them, and that was it. That's a remnant. Lot and his two daughters made it out of Sodom and Gomorrah. One of my favorites, and it's, and it's, back, in, it's back in Kings, 1 Kings, but the commentary on it is in Romans 11, and it's funny how it all ties in because, you know, we said, I told you about Jezebel, right? Well, the, the, the story of that is Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy all the prophets of Baal. Four, 850, I think it was, 450, yeah. And uh, he called down fire to destroy all these prophets. They, they couldn't get their God, Baal, to do anything, but God, Elijah, calls down fire, destroys all these prophets, and he's feeling really good about himself, and then Jezebel sends a letter and says, I'm going to kill you, and he runs. Now, that's how... That's how mean this woman was. I went off on a rap trail. But when we talk about a godly remnant, Elijah, see, here's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to tell you that you're all alone. He wants to say nobody else is going through what you're going through. People don't understand. You're by yourself. You've got the, we've all, look, just this morning I have talked to several people who are dealing with stuff. And let me just go ahead and reassure you you're not alone. If you talk to anyone long enough, you'll find out. If you communicate, you will find out that everybody's dealing with something. But what the enemy wants to do is he wants to put us all in these little boxes like nobody else is dealing with this medical situation. Nobody else is dealing with this family member. Nobody else is dealing with this kind of situation. Yes, they are. But if we come together and talk about it and minister to one another, it makes you able to handle those things. But even Elijah, and I'm going to read Romans 11, 2 through 5, which if you read the whole story, you'll, you'll understand why it's a little bit funny. But it says, this is Elijah. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? How he appeals, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. Here's Elijah thinking he's the only, he's the only guy that loves the Lord left in the whole earth, and they seek to take my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, so too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God still had 7,000 men 
See, there's always a remnant. There was a remnant in this church in Thyatira. I don't know the number of the people there. And Jezebel was there, the woman they called Jezebel. And people were, people were committing sexual immorality. They were worshiping idols. They were doing all these things. But there was a remnant. There was a godly remnant there who said, we're going to continue to love God, to serve God, to persevere, and to have faith. My last point is the promise, which I really wanted to get here because that's what we want. We want the promise. We want a promise from God. We don't want to think about the rebuke all the time. We want a promise. We want to know what he's going to do for us. We want to hear God speak to his people. And I love, I love it because in Revelation 2, 26 through 29, it says, To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone who hears, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. In Matthew 25:21. I think it speaks to verse 26 there where it talks about the victorious. It says, The master was full of praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount, and now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. He's saying to this remnant in Thyatira, Hang on. Keep doing good. Keep following me. There is a promise for you. There is, there is victory for you. There is a place for you. And he's talking about, in, he, in this particular passage, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. There's a place for you. And he says rule. It says they will rule the nations with an iron rod. That, that word rule is actually, boy, I'm going to butcher it. Uh, P-O-I-M-A-N-E-I. I listened to it pronounced like several times and I thought I'm going to mess that up. So that's what it is. Look it up. But the word rule there actually means shepherd. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to allow you to shepherd people. Indicating, what does a shepherd do? He protects, he gives food, he gives water. When it says smash like clay, smash clay pots, it means anybody that gets in the way, they're going to have the authority to protect God's flock. They're going to have authority. They're, going to, they're not just going to rule. They're going to shepherd these people. It's a loving term. Um, and then in 28 where he says, they will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. The morning star, that's Jesus promising Jesus. That's what he's saying. You're going to have me. Stay on point. Hold fast. Don't tolerate sin. I'm not talking about intolerance towards people. I'm not talking about love. I'm not saying don't love people. I'm saying this scripture is talking about tolerance. Church in Thyatira, 
Don't tolerate sin. Don't follow Jezebel. And here's what you get. You get me, Jesus Christ. You get me. You get to shepherd people. Now, this, this point where he's talking about shepherding people, that means there's going to be good people who believed in Christ who need to be shepherded. See, and we're going to talk more about this in the, in the next couple of churches, so I don't want to steal it, but just because you punched your ticket to heaven and you believe in Jesus, don't think it's all the same. There's rewards and there will be people who will shepherd other people. Now, you're not going to be one of the people being shepherd going, man, this stinks. <laughs> I wish I was in the other place. You're not going to be that. But God is a God of reward. He rewards faithfulness. And when you follow what he says the church needs to be, love, faith, service, perseverance, then you will be a shepherd and You'll get Christ. In Revelation 22, 16, Christ is called the bright morning star. In this scripture, he says, you'll receive the morning star. And I liked how, and I liked how this commentator put it. He says, the promise is then that the church in Thyatira, faithful to the calling of God, will eventually receive the morning star that is abiding, close, intimate, and eternal fellowship with the Lord himself. Isn't that what we want? Close, intimate, abiding relationship with the Lord. And here's the deal. It's free. It's free. It's a free gift right there. But you can't pick it up unless you're willing to put something else down. You can't pick it up with an arm full of sinful activity. <coughs> I'm not saying changing all at once. I'm saying repent means to put away, to, to change course, to change your mind. If you want to pick up the gift, you have to put something else down. You have to say, I'm done with that. And then let God come in and help you be done with that. As I was... Um, as I was back there, I was thinking, you know, how, how's the best way to close a, a message? And I'm going to ask a favor of our worship team. I'm going to call an audible, if that's okay. And I know it is with Jordan. Um, the best way to close this message is for us to sing that last song again. Um, because there is nothing else. There is nothing else. There's nothing else for you on this earth. There's nothing else that can be considered. There's nothing else except Christ. And so this morning as we sing that last song, we sang it and, and, I, saw, and I saw people worshiping and I was worshiping. But as we sing that last song, as we sing that song again, Let's really get focused in on those words. Let's really get focused in on the expectations of Christ for us. There's expectations. There's expectations because his expectations is love, faith, service, 
and perseverance. If you don't take anything else away from this message today, understand that if you hold fast to those things, that you'll be victorious.